Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, reporting on the border and immigration. So far this year, El Paso, Texas has become a flashpoint for a lot of the border coverage and the border issues surrounding the Trump administration and its detaining of families. We've seen a encampment grow under one of the main bridges between El Paso and Juarez, which is its sister city in Mexico. And then this week, a lot of reporting on a detention center east of the city in Clint, Texas. That piece and a lot of the coverage around it was generated by a report that was a joint project of the El Paso Times and the New York Times. And I'm pleased to have two El Paso Times reporters on the phone with me, Erin Montez and Lauren Villagran. Welcome. Hello, thank you for thank having you. me. Uh, El Paso is my hometown. I grew up there. I grew up in Isleta a million years ago. So when I read these stories, it has real resonance for me. Aaron, you're a native too, right? Yes, born and raised. So um, let's start with you, Aaron, because you were involved in that joint piece with the Times on the Clinton facility. Tell us, uh, well, first tell me what you do with the Times. I mean, how much of your effort is devoted to immigration issues? You, you previously were at El Diario. <laughs> I got my start in journalism in El Paso at El Diario, and then moved over to a small business journal called El Paso Inc. Um, I started at the Times in February. Uh-huh. I've I've been working on um, on border issues, immigration issues, and reporting them that whole time. So, fairly familiar with the way things roll out here in El Paso in terms of immigration, cross-border relationships between El Paso and Juarez, as as I'm sure you know, uh, <laughs> being from the Isleta area. I guess right now the biggest difference for me is a lot of the attention uh, typically goes towards the Rio Grande Valley. They they typically see bigger migration numbers than we do and that that's still the case, but in terms of percentage growth, our our sector grew the most in terms of uh, CBP apprehensions beginning from October till April and now I I think I saw a report not long ago that said that the that the numbers are starting to decline. So let, let me ask you and and we'll get in, in a second to what it feels like to have the national press sort of land on a story that has long been an area of focus. I know this is especially true with Lauren, but talk to me, Aaron, first about the Clint facility and how it first got on your radar and how you sort of realized that there was something going on there that merited extra attention. Sure. Well, back in March, I did a, a tour with the Border Patrol they were very open about, you know, just their processes, about the apprehension numbers, about how it is they apprehend migrants once they've crossed over the riverbed and waiting along fences. And, you know, I witnessed a lot of that. They let you ride in, in the car, in the truck with them? Yes, yes. And uh, we drove up and down, I guess, the border w- between El Paso and Juarez for a day. We encountered a couple of groups. One was about 15, 16 people. The, the next one was about 60 and the the next group was a was a lot smaller, but it had unaccompanied migrant children. And you you accompanied them on obviously on the U.S. side, right? Just right, just on the other side of the of the river. Right, right. And uh, there's a uh, small sliver of land between the riverbed and the fence uh, that is the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have pa- uh, not paved, but dirt roads mm-hmm. carved out on this you know desert looking land, you know, so that they can drive up and down that area and get to when migrants show up. Or. So you guys came across this group that included unaccompanied minors, and then what happened? It was a rainy day. These unaccompanied children were accompanied by, I think, two older men. Uh, they, they were of no relation, but 
they seemed really tired. They laid down, you know, as soon as they saw us coming, because knowing that they'd made it to the United States and that they were going to, you know, be in U.S. custody after that. The, the Border Patrol agents I was with, they were aided by a few other Border Patrol agents that showed up. They came in their own trucks to take them over to the processing facility that Border Patrol has out in East El Paso, and then what I later found out was Clint. And you had never heard of it? You didn't, this had never been on your radar? This was not on my radar, at least until after this day. What, what we ended up doing was uh, we took the two adults and the unaccompanied children over to the East El Paso facility, and I asked the agent, his name is Ramiro Cordero, you know, what's going to happen with these children? He says, oh, well, they're going to get processed, and then they're going to be taken to Clint. And that was the very first time that I had heard about Clint. And of course, you know, as a journalist, you hear that and you, you, you write that down, you know, so that way you can follow it later. But at the time, I had been following this thing about migrants being kept under the bridge. Yeah. And that was the story for me at, at the time, you know, to follow. And did you ask other of your colleagues at the Times, anybody know what's up with Clint? Anybody know what's going on there? Was this, did anybody know? Right, well, we did talk about it. And I think the general consensus was, we, we had no idea there was an operation out there. Yeah. So, Lauren, you're fairly n- new to the Times, right? Yeah, I've been here just about a month. And, but, but you've been covering border issues for a dozen or more years from both the U.S. and Mexico side? Yeah, absolutely. My, my first job was covering the border, and I eventually went to New York for the Associated Press and then also worked in Mexico as a foreign correspondent and then came back to the border about seven years ago. So I've had experience with these issues for for some time. And what's interesting about Clint, and maybe didn't initially raise a lot of red flags, is that this has been going on for a while. I mean, under the Obama administration, I you know I covered the period in 2016 when you had the Obama administration stand up a temporary shelter for unaccompanied minors because there was a huge wave of unaccompanied minors uh-huh. in 2016 as well. So some of these issues are are perennial. I think what's different right now about the Clint facility is just the horrific conditions that the kids um, have been left in in weeks on end. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, I mean, what is it like for you to be, you know, this, uh, as you point out, this is an area that you've been writing about for a very long time and are very familiar with. And, and now you see this swarm of media attention, you know, including on your, the very place where you're now working. Does it seem like belated and or too late or, or do you sort of see it as a welcome amount of, of coverage at this point? I mean, I would Look, it's it's pretty typical on the border and border coverage that there's fads and trends and mm-hmm. national media swoops in. And I think that that's important, actually. I think when you've got an issue where, you know, children are in danger or children are in, you know, um, inappropriate conditions, I, I would never say it's not a great thing to have, you know, journalists from all over the place parachute in. I think what, you know, what's frustrating uh, as a border journalist is sometimes, you get that national attention in a way that makes it seem as if that's what everything is like here, or uh-huh. there becomes sort of a, you end up with sort of a caricature of what, of what the border is, of what border patrol is, of, mm-hmm. you know, what border life is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be, you know, a little, a little frustrating, but no, I would, you know, I think the national attention is always a good thing. It would be nice if it could be more sustained, but that's what we're here for. Yeah. No, I mean, it's something I've been thinking a lot about because I, you know, where I live, there was a, there was a highway, I forgot what it was called or what it's called now, that runs from downtown 
all the way along the border down. Bike tunnel. Yeah, that. <laughs> Just exactly that, the border highway. Border highway, right. And, yeah. the, the, yeah. you know, there would be, when I was growing up, and there, there, there were constantly people crossing over, um, running over that highway, and an incredible danger. And flow between El Paso and Juarez has, has always been a sort of part of that community. And so I'm just wondering, this is to your point, Lauren, and, and Aaron, too, if, since you grew up there, like, do, does it feel materially different, just the everyday pulse of the city in terms of, the, of that movement between the two countries? You know, El Paso has seen um, some of the highest growth in terms of percentage-wise of uh, the numbers of migrants, you know, and this is compared to other border cities throughout the, in the southwest border. We've become second only to the Rio Grande Valley, uh, at least in this particular fiscal year. And what, what, what's very different this time is just the, the need to respond. Mm-hmm. You've got nonprofits here that were renting hotels at over a million dollars and spending over a million dollars in order to house Mm-hmm. Uh, just the sheer number of people and families that were coming through. The city itself is also trying to respond in terms of providing emergency management so they'll provide bus rides for migrant families who are released over to these shelters. It's just become, you know, quite the, it, it was quite the rush for people to respond to this issue. So it's just the volume of people is what's changed and and what's created this sort of added sense of crisis. To your point about, like, having grown up here or having been from here, I, you know, I didn't grow up here, but I, I was here 20 years ago, and I actually arrived here in the wake of 9-11. Uh-huh. And so you look at the sort of patterns of border, you know, um, in quotes, crises, right? That was a moment when the day, like, daily life had been completely upended, because you have to remember that whatever the illegal traffic pattern is, it's almost always dwarfed by the legal traffic pattern. Like the tens of thousands of people who cross every day and whose lives are affected by um, whether it's illegal crossings or federal policies and federal border security initiatives that that really upend life here. So, you know, in the wake of 9-11, I was on the bridge for those three-hour lines Mm. when they started with the code of green, yellow, orange, and red, and, you know, it was orange every day, and the lines were terrible. And then you saw that calm down, and what we're seeing right now is the way that the administration has chosen to respond to the increase in border crossings, which, again, as Aaron mentioned, are nowhere near what you're seeing in the Rio Grande Valley, but it has been a very sharp increase in our area, so there is a sense of unpreparedness. The administration chose, for example, to move CBP officers, many from the bridges in El Paso, instead of, for example, from other parts of the border or other airports in the interior of the United States and put them on border patrol duty. And that has, you know, really impacted mm. life for those of us, um, me, Aaron, and all of the border commuters who, who cross the border on a daily or weekly basis. I mean, it's, it's really upended life. So there's, there's a sense of like, yes, there, there is a sharp increase in illegal immigration. Um, d- did it have to affect daily life the way that it has? I don't yeah. know. Seems like there are multiple ways to respond to it. So, so how is the Times thinking through this, Lauren? Are you full time on on the border and border issues? Yes, correct. And you know, you mentioned earlier we talked a little bit about like local versus national. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons why I joined the um, the El Paso Times and the USA Today Network was specifically because it's both. 
So as yeah. we look at border issues, and Aaron covers border issues, and I cover border issues, we're in a national conversation with editors at USA Today, mm-hmm. and that the the kind of conversation around how the network, how the border newspapers, how the El Paso Times looks at these issues is both local and national, which is re- which is really important and really cool. I think. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because, uh, as you say, it, it is it is a huge local story with national implications. Which is one of the things I thought was so cool about this collaboration between the times, the two times is <laughs> was you know I think I think it was sort of played to both their strengths. So I, I read in the on the wire that there is supposed to be a big round of arrests on Sunday all over the country. Um, how are you guys? Have you talked yet about how how you're going to approach that and how cause we were we were discussing here in our office like what what to make of that in terms of what's a sort of smart way for media to think about covering that? When when they announced those raids a couple of weeks ago and then canceled them, they were supposed to only be in a handful of very large cities. I didn't mm-hmm. see El Paso included specifically. Mm-hmm. That being said, one of the last stories I did at the nonprofit that I worked at before I came here was related to a surge in deportations of what the government calls non-criminal aliens. So the government, I mean, regardless of this sort of like almost PR move of announcing um, raids in advance of doing them, it's been a drumbeat of searching for, routing out, um, you know, hunting down, as the former ICE director once said a, a year or so ago, undocumented immigrants. And deporting them. And, you know, under the Obama administration, we did see some prosecutorial discretion where you were looking at arresting people who had criminal charges or outstanding warrants. That's not necessarily the case right now, although my understanding is that the raids this weekend were supposed to focus on those with criminal charges. I mean, you you use the term PR tactic, which I think that's what makes this such a conundrum, because here you have the administration's already leaking out that this is coming Sunday and that they're going to be focused on families and and, you know, I just have this picture in my head of like a, a sort of clutch of TV cameras in the face of some poor family who's being dragged out of their apartment in New York or Chicago or L.A. or wherever with their kids in tow. And it's a it's a media event. And, you know, which isn't also to say that there isn't a real story here involving real people. But I'm just I think there is a discussion to be had about how news organizations should balance all that. Sure. And, you know, it's- Generally, I, I'm always hearing that there's fear of, you know, ICE arriving at workplaces here doing their checks. Uh, there's there's a form that uh, people typically have to sign when when you're being employed, and sometimes in El Paso, I've heard that they'll go ahead and do that. And I'm always hearing rumors about um, ICE cracking down on on migrant workers who are day laborers in El Paso but when you're when you see something like there's going to be these nationwide raids you kind of think to yourself what it's kind of like Lauren said I mean is it that the government is just trying to put out a message um, is it part of the administration strategy I, that's something that you always think about and you know for me at least in terms of just local reporting you always want to you know just take a look back at the community and just see how this impacts them in terms of mentality um that that that's always generally one of my concerns is you know what are these constant threats um do to somebody mentally because you know, if you're always worried about and you're always in this state of worry you know that that impacts people generally different and it also kind of shows you the i don't know for lack of a better word atmosphere uh, yeah. 
of, of the issues. What Aaron says is really important because it doesn't actually matter when the government makes an announcement like this. It doesn't really matter, quote unquote, whether you know, X number of people are deported in El Paso, what the administration does is create a climate of fear, like Aaron said. And yeah. in, in my previous job, we focused a lot on child well-being. That was one of our core areas of focus. And I did a lot of work in southern New Mexico, which sort of abuts El Paso, on the impact on children, U.S. citizen children or, you know, children of any status, who, I mean, it affects, it affects their ability to perform in school. It affects their psychological development, this constant state of fear of wondering whether mom or dad is going to be home when they get home. And the, the, the reality is for a lot of kids in our region, mom and dad were deported. Mom or dad is in Juarez. And kids spend their week trying to go to school in El Paso or in Sunland Park and then, you know, the weekends with mom or dad in Juarez. And I've been covering this a while, and I don't remember either the Bush or um, Obama administrations making pre-announcements mm-hmm. about rape. Mm-hmm. Not to say that ICE wasn't doing its job or, or doing the work of, of deporting undocumented people, both with and without criminal charges, but, but the, the, the pre-announcement is... It, it is a fear-mongering. It, mm-hmm. it, it puts everybody on their toes, and I think that that's, it's very clear that that's what the federal government wants. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Aaron and Lauren, it's great to talk to you. I have a feeling you're going to be quite busy over the next few months, but thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. You, you can read the CGR piece about what the El Paso Times has been doing on our website at cgr.org, and as well as following everything else that we're doing here, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.